0: myself and welcome you guys to our, our church. And uh, we are, I think uh, Peter said, that we are in our last Sunday actually of a sermon series on the Song of Solomon here as a church. So if you're unfamiliar with that book, it's one of the books of the Old Testament, kind of smack dab right in the middle of the Old Testament, one of the wisdom literature books of the Old Testament that King Solomon wrote. He wrote about kind of three and a half of them, the half being some of the Psalms, but uh, three others of them. Is that right or two? Anyway, at least Ecclesiastes and Song and oh, Proverbs, of course. Yeah, so three and a half. Anyway, wrote a lot of those uh, that section, that genre of the scriptures, and this one has to do with love, and there's, love is, is splattered throughout the scriptural, uh, biblical storyline. We'll talk about that a little bit today, but uh, Song of Solomon is a love poem between King Solomon. It's poetry, a uh, love poem between, his, uh, between himself and his, his wife, and it covers their engagement all the way through their wedding day to their, some of their post-marital uh, relations and, and uh, dialogue and interactions, some, some further separations and uh, reunitings, and so some of that will come up today. But uh, by means of summary, uh, it's always kind of fun to preach the final. If you're here today for the first time, if would be thinking, oh, it's a terrible day to come, it's actually a great day to come because we'll summarize this whole book uh, for you in about like 10 points here uh, on the topic of love. But I wanted to mention, remind you that as we've been saying throughout the book, as the Bible does, when it talks about love, it never talks about it in a stagnant kind of manner. Never as though love or marriage is on an island of meaning. It's always connected with God. And God is a master at that. He's a master at saying, I have created the spiritual realm, but the physical realm as well. It's a gift, whether you're eating a good meal or enjoying a relationship or seeing a sunset or a sunrise, that is a, a common grace. It's a gift to all, uh, to all to enjoy. But it's also not just for their benefit, it's to say something about me. So when marriage comes up in the Bible, he calls himself, both testaments, old and new, all the way throughout the storyline, he calls himself a husband, a faithful husband who dies for his wife. To the end that, aside from the Bible, which is the best way to hear from God and to know about Him, one of the best ways, aside from that, although the Bible talks about this, so it's kind of a both end. But anyway, aside from that, one of the best ways to know what God is like is to look at a husband who actually lays down his life. This can happen figuratively and should husbands every day for our wives. But if it actually happens, God says, "I am like that husband. I am like that husband who gladly laid down his wife, took the bullets." or went into the burning house and brought them all out safely at the, at the cost of his own life. He's saying, you want to know what I'm like? I'm like that husband in my love for you. So we've seen that portrayed here. This is a, a poem written around 960 B.C. by a king, one of the kings of Israel, King Solomon, son of David. But he's not just writing about himself. He's kind of, as we've said throughout the series, writing beyond himself. God is intending, as the ultimate author of this, intending to say he's like Solomon here. He 's like the husband here, and the things that he says about his wife 's character and her body and uh, relationships and communication and sex and all of that tell a story and all of our relationships can do that too in marriage he 's created gender as well to help tell a story which we 've brought up uh, at a ver- on a variety of levels throughout this series, but uh, he 's the author he 's the master, the creator of it, and he 's saying that when a husband is both husband and wives are sacrificially loving he 's in that, but especially when a husband lays down his life for his wife so What I want to do by means of uh, summarizing this book is uh, 10 things here, and there are more. I just stopped at 10 because it was a nice round number, but there are more. Uh, Make a a broad true statement here about what we've learned about love categorically, but then a correlative statement on how the Bible says God's love is like that, that kind of love. And the third thing is kind of I'll quote some scripture for frame of reference. There are a couple exceptions that fall outside that general format, that pattern you'll see this here, but mostly um, this will be the means by which we catch, catch you all up to speed. And for those of you who have been here every week, just to remind you what God tells us about love, but about himself in that kind of uh, love, which we'll connect more dots here as the morning goes on. All right, so here's uh, Song of Solomon in like 10 nutshells or, you know, uh, 10 bullet points. What have you learned about love? First, back in chapter 1, that love is better than wine. Like, God and his love are better than life, from Psalm 63. Love is communication, like God's love is shown to us by speaking so much, speaking the word of Christ ultimately into the world. Love in general is to be principally given by a husband and reciprocated by a wife. Like Christ initiated as the ultimate husband, initiated love with us, his bride, not the other way around. Love is to be waited for, not rushed, like we wait on God for his consummative, salvific love. Love overcomes boundaries and separation. Sex in the marriage context being the closest physical union two human beings can experience in this life. Like, or similarly, uh, God overcame the barrier of sin and death that existed between us and Him through His Son's blood and subsequently made us one spirit with Himself. Love is more an action than a feeling, like God's love was shown to us through the sacrificial actions of Christ. Love is found outside the figurative city, in the gardens and fields and villages, like Christ, later in history, died outside Jerusalem or outside the gates of the city to show us that his grace would be given apart from law. Uh, law and Jerusalem being symbolically connected thematically in the Bible. Eight, love is a giving up of the self to another like Christ gave himself to our sins. Nine, love is strong as death. Like Christ's love was even stronger than death because he rose again three days later. And ultimately, ten, we've learned that God is love. First uh, John 4, 8 love, marriage, and sex do not exist apart from Him. They tell us about Him. They're much more about Him than they are us. Therefore, marriage itself is not the ultimate goal for human beings, but rather to know God through uh, marriage in part, whether we actually get married in this life or not. And again, as I said before, God is like a husband who lays down his life uh, for his wife. So we're going to add to this list today and look at this idea of love being costly. It's kind of new, but kind of a review. If you've been here, it's come up once before uh, earlier in the book, but we're going to talk about it more robustly today. Love is costly, but so worth it. Make some concluding statements here about love in the final six verses in chapter 8. In Song of Solomon. So let me read this to begin. Remember that uh, he is speaking and she, they're speaking to each other mostly, but there's this other group labeled others sometimes uh, in the book that's mostly referring to her single friends, but on occasion referring to, like here, a different group. And here it's probably more referring to a a flashback, her brothers, kind of pre pre adolescence for her. You'll see what I mean here in a second, but uh, it's mostly she speaking. So, verse 8 We have a little sister and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she's spoken for? If she's a wall, we will build on her a battlements of silver, but if she's a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before you, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand and the keepers of the fruit, two hundred. O you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. let pray with me. God, thank you for uh, this passage, this whole book that we've had just the privilege of reading these past 15 weeks. Thank you for the very clear parts of the Bible and the very Hazy parts like these uh, sections of Song of Solomon that are difficult. We thank you for both. Uh, the, the trickier parts keep us in our place. They remind me that there are mysterious things about you that we'll never fully get, uh, but it reminds you also that you are a God of symbolism. You're a God of poetry. Uh, you're a God of love. And I pray that um, you would help us, God, to uh, to see the haze kind of blown away from this passage, and uh, that we be left with the cross of Christ uh, at the core. Really, what this is about is about Jesus ahead of time. So. Maybe leave encouraged, uh, converted afresh for the first time, maybe for the thousandth. Uh, but build your church, grow your church, and get glory in saving people from uh, their sins, from our sins. In Christ's name, amen. So going back to verses 8 to 12, just to start, if you want to follow along on those little sheets inside your folders you got when you walked in, uh, you can see it kind of in context there. Uh, going back to these first four, this will be on screen though as well. Uh, basically what she's doing here in the more cryptic part of this passage uh, talking about herself in adolescence, is saying uh, that she's been set apart for Solomon. So looking back to uh, that time, that, and she eventually caught his eye and that she's precious to him, even more precious than a thousand vineyards worth of produce and money. So the first two verses then are that flashback when her brothers or this other party were speaking about her in that pre-adolescent state, not having developed breasts and things like that. At that point, she's thinking backwards She's remembering this and that she was eventually, as time went on, not, this is the important thing to get here, is there's a door and a wall used. They're kind of conflicting ideas or uh, contrasting ideas. She was not, as time went on, so much a door, that is to say someone who was passed through easily by many men, but a wall. That is to say someone who was healthily kept, uh, kept herself healthily from them earlier in her life. And so now she sees, kind of now she's married at this point in the book, she's seen that she was kept for him, beautified with silver and now in Solomon's eyes as uh, one who finds peace. And so much so did she catch his eye that she became like this special vineyard to him. So if you haven't been here for the series, uh, understand that vineyard poetically a lot of times refers to uh, her or their relationship, so they speak poetically about the vineyard of their marriage or the vineyard of their relationship. Or she says, "I am like a vineyard that Solomon came to kind of walk through, uh, speaking sensually about uh, even sexually about their uh, relationship." So, but here, speaking about herself, uh, this is she's saying, "I had this one special vineyard before Solomon, but she had or he has a thousand, and his servants two hundred, and that they are bringing in constantly this produce and this money." In a commerce kind of way uh, back to him. So, comparatively, then, this is strike. The point is to say this is a stark contrast between what she kind of has to give or what she's represented as poetically here and what he has a thousand to one. So, what it's saying then and suggesting, it's implying, is that Solomon is choosing the one vineyard over the many. Whether he actually loses them or not is not the point. It's just saying that his gaze is taken to look at this one vineyard rather than the woman, this, his wife, rather than the thousands uh, that he had uh, outside, of, outside of her. So he loses the many to gain the one. He kind of, though he was rich, filthy rich, if you know Solomon's story, it wasn't just wi- a wise king, he was unprecedentedly rich. So though rich, he kind of became poor for the sake of love, became poor for the sake of his uh, wife in terms of how she took his gaze away from that which formerly took his attention. So it's a picture of a guy, really, who says, this is really costly. This relationship I'm entering into is going to cost me a lot, but it's so worth it. So worth it. Thousand for one, losing the many to gain the one. Very costly love is, but it's, it's so worth it. There's two sides then to that idea. It's kind of the broader idea for today. We'll end with a couple of other things here in just a few minutes. But um, the broader idea is love is many things, as we just saw on that list, but it's costly. And there's two sides, the human side, how do we see this play out in our experience, but also that divine side, how do we see it play out in the gospel story? How is it costly for God? We'll come back to that in in a second. But on the human side, anyone who's been in love knows this is true, Uh, at least in in part. Love costs us something. Even from the front end of things, it's it's risky. There's this upfront cost of, well, this may not be reciprocated. (laughs) This might be, like in my relationship with Aletha, I was really interested in her right away after we met, but I kind of sat on that for a couple of months until I just couldn't handle it anymore. So I finally talked to her, but the, the risky part was I was her community group leader, her small group leader. So I was thinking, I just had that dilemma, like what if this goes south? I mean, I don't know what, what's going to happen. You have to like stop being you know, her leader and kind of pass the baton and go to church. You know? I mean, it's just, those those kind of like, man, she could really reject this, but fortunately she didn't. But anyway, we put ourselves out there, right? When we pursue love, you stick your neck out at the risk of, and many, many of us and all of us at some point are rejected in those offerings of love at some point um, in our life. Even if they're received later on by the same person, there's, there, there's a cost to, to love. But then, more so, at past the upfront end of things, as a relationship develops, each person sacrifices things to prioritize the other. It just happens. In marriage especially, uh, this this occurs. You remain the same kind of, but you change. It just happens. In uh, in my in Aletha's case, uh, Aletha came here to the U of M for grad school back when we met to, for a couple years. Right, just a couple years. You we were going to be here on our way to somewhere else and um, studying geology at the U of M, and didn't end up going further because she met me. We got married. It's kind of a joke that I derailed her dreams all the time, but um, she wouldn't say that. But uh, And I, you know, but so anyway, she gave up, she was going to pursue a PhD and kind of gave that up for the sake of the relationship. Like I, I, to her, I was more important than future education, the relationship that we had. So sacrifice, so a cost came along with pursuing love. On my side of things, I gave up, you know, tons of hobbies that I was just pouring into, some almost sinfully so, because it was just too much of a thing for me. But even if, aside from that, hobbies like golf and art, I used to draw and paint a ton, and it just takes time. In golf, I played golf three times a week when I was a student, and it's like, you know, you, get, you just start to prioritize other things. It's like, that's not going to happen. I mean, even now, the idea of, like, five hours on a Saturday, you know, uh, just with me and some buddies on a golf course, it's like, that wouldn't go over too well, you know. But that's fine. It's not, it, it, we both gave these things, in friendships. I mean, when you get married, you sacrifice friendships usually. And you, you, not that they become sour, you maintain them to a degree, but your spouse becomes your best friend. And the, the other friendships you have kind of change, right? So all you guys that have been in relationships like this, I'm guessing, can acknowledge this to some degree. No, that's not to say that all of you sacrifice on the same way. It's like maybe some of you do keep pursuing education together or one of you, you can still do that or hobbies kind of stay the same. The other person comes along and adopts that hobby and do it together, for sure. I'm just saying that in general, there's cost, right? Love takes priority and, and like you see here with Solomon when he's kind of talking about or she is and he is too but the thousand to the one, you don't get a sense poetically that he's bitter about this. So worth it. Thousand vineyards, for the sake of this one that I adore, totally worth it. It's, it's the same with losing hobbies and friendships and sacrificing education, And in, in our case, just to share our story at least, so, so it still is to this day. I mean, I'll drive by golf courses today and think, oh, I missed that. But at the same time, it's like, I don't, then it's gone, you know? I'm like, oh, but for the sake of Aletha, it's not even, not even in the same category. It's so, 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 so my past. So anyway, so again, doesn't mean it's wrong to pursue those things after marriage, it just means that in general uh, we, we sacrifice those things. And actually it better, or it means we probably haven't fully given ourselves over to another person. If there's no sacrifice at all, then it probably means we haven't fully given ourselves uh, over. I think it was um, uh, Nicole Kidman, this is going way back, but uh, Nicole Kidman, when she got divorced from Tom Cruise, I don't know if you guys remember this or not, but No one did first service, but I swear it's true. (laughs) I don't have a source. I know it's true. Hopefully some of you guys do. But anyway, that first thing there uh, with, anyway, I think his first marriage, right? Uh, When they got divorced, Nicole Kidman went on record saying one of the reasons why this didn't work is, uh, or I think she said it this way, for it to work, one of us needed to sacrifice our careers and let the other one be the actor. Because both being an actor, both being just fully absorbed into this career and being traveling and being all about that and not about each other, primarily, just ended our relationship. That was the, that was the defining thing, was we both get, careers was first, then relationship. And she said, well, I think it might have worked if one, one of us said, no, I'm sac- I'm, there's a cost here. I'm saying no to my career as much as I love it for the sake of uh, the other person. So, as a secular person, just going on record saying there wasn't enough cost paid. There, there, it wasn't, love wasn't costly enough for us, and that's why it ended, because does do remember this by the way? Oh, one person does. Two. Thank you. I'm not crazy. That's good. I was starting to think I was going a little nuts there, but anyway. But I've said this before elsewhere, too, in the Song of Solomon. I forget what context it came up, but um, some of you guys are single still. And that's great. Singleness is to be praised as well. We talked about that elsewhere in the series, but if you're considering marriage, don't get married if you want to remain king or queen of your life. It's one of the worst things you can do, uh, and that's a common worldly perspective on marriage is You know, if I get married, they can help me achieve all my ambitions and my plans and my dreams, and they'll just make me this better person. And I mean, geez, maybe, you know, later, kind of, you know, but that's not the first thing. I mean, it's actually the Bible says, no, when you get married, when you take vows to each other, you die, you're done. And you're raised from the dead, one flesh with another person. You have a new identity and a relationship with another person, and they become primary and first for you. It's not about you anymore. It's not. It's never about you. So, become married. You are very prepared to die, because that's what it takes every day. It says it costs your life to have a successful, healthy marriage. And, and if, if it's not right now in your marriage, it doesn't mean that this is the end or that all hope is lost for your marriage. It's just a call back to having the right perspective on what healthy love is. Love is sacrifice. The Bible does not separate the two. There's no such thing as good love that is not costly. No such thing. You might not. You might not feel that. You might not experience that in your life doesn't matter. Objectively speaking, God is saying, I created love. I am love. And I'm telling you, love is costly. It's worth it. <laughs> worth it. But it will cost you, uh, ultimately, your life, figuratively or, or literally. So great day-to-day marriage advice as well, for those of you who are married or who will be someday, is just ask yourself every day, what can I give up today for my husband or wife? What can I say no to? Even if it's just Comfort. Uh, what, can I, what can I give up? What luxury can I lay down for the sake of them? I, I promise you, if you do that, you will do it imperfectly, but if you have a season of doing that relatively well, by God's grace, your marriage will thrive. Because that's love. Your spouse will see love at the highest level uh, being played out uh, before you. They'll, you'll see they love me more than themselves. And who doesn't want to be loved that way? You know. And if that's repeatedly kind of just pressed into a marriage, uh, it, is, it is just incredible uh, to see. They can see it in a friendship too, but, but especially a marriage. Tim Keller says here, just to kind of segue us, uh, pastor in New York City, he says, all love, at least all real life-changing love is really at its core substitutionary sacrifice. So that segues us then into this divine side. There's some human, we see this in experience. Why I spent time there is it shouldn't be super shocking for us. I mean, for some of us, you've never seen that really play out well, and so if this is kind of new. That's great. But it shouldn't shock us overall. It shouldn't be completely out of left field because we see this play out in our experience. Love costs something, so it shouldn't be shocking then to see that God, who's a God of love, also spent something. It cost him something to love us. It's exactly what we see. It cost God, biblically, clearly, Something to save us from our sins and in that salvation to love us. It cost him his son. It cost him his very life. And so one thing we can't then, and we'll see this in a second with some verses, but we can't affirm biblically is that God kind of backed into the idea of saving the world from their sins. (laughs) You know, like, whoa, didn't mean to do that. I just kind of, it just kind of flowed out for me. This power came out for me or something and it just sort of happened. And whoa, surprise me. Like not, it took tons of intentionality. You know, tons of sacrifice, tons of pain. You know, God's love cost him pain over us. The worst kind of pain, an excruciating amount of pain on a cross two thousand years ago. Love drove him there, and other motives as well. But love drove him there. It took. It took again intentionality and planning and all of that. Love is just deeply entrenched in this idea of hard work. And, and sacrifice. But anyway, a few places you see, see this in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 6, it says, you are not your, speaking of the church, you church are not your own anymore for you were bought with a price, that price being Jesus' blood. So again, cost. He spent something. He spent his blood. He spent the price of his son to buy us back from sin and death. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Who does that sound like? Solomon, right? In today's passage, he's, 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 he's letting go of his possessions. He's kind of becoming, even though he's rich, kind of focusing more on that one vineyard than the thousands worth of produce and money. He's kind of laying that down for the sake Love's just better than money. Love's so much better than, uh, than all the possessions of, of the earth, and so in a similar sense, Christ is being talked about here is what he did for us on a cross. Philippians 2, more explicitly, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he was God's son, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son But gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So again, to apply Song of Solomon language to all of this, like Solomon gave up the thousand vineyards for the one, so has Jesus for you and for me. The ultimate Solomon he was, giving up his comfortable place in heaven to empty himself, embrace fallen humanity, including sin our sins, kind of absorbing that into himself, suffer rejection and pain, all in order to show his love for us by rescuing us from the clutches of hell. We talked last week about God being a jealous God in a good way. That can be a, a negative thing, of course. Jealousy can be sinful, but there's also a good kind of jealousy that is, that is anti-passive. You know, when a, when a husband is jealous for the protection for his wife in a protective kind of way, that's a good kind, right? Because it means he actually cares, he gives a rip, right, about her. So his love will be moved to jealousy when she's in trouble. It's the same kind of thing here. Love is rescuing us from the clutches of hell, eternal separation from him. That's why the cross is so bloody. He's burying the sins of the world and suffering substitutionarily in, in our place. And so, one, we could look at a lot of other places, of course, but one question we have to ask then and should, whenever you read the Bible and you come across this statement or idea of, God's love, or God is, God's paying something. It's, he's spending something, or it costs him something to, to win us back. Whenever you see some kind of language used like that, like we have today, you should you're, you should train your brain to automatically see love there, because biblically they are synonymous. Love and sacrifice are like this. You cannot pull, biblically. We I mean, we can pull them apart in the sense that we can have very imperfect showings of love, right? But in God's eyes, and with the way God shows perfect love, you never have those two. Um, taken apart, so so we ask the question then, why is God so intent on this it, it show, and showing us repeatedly that, he, that it costs something? The answer is because He wants us to know that He loves us right so he 's saying, "I want you to know that I spent something to save you because I want you to know that I love you it 's a way to say I love you ultimately, and so that 's why that 's why it 's not just a transaction it 's a showing song of Solomon 's been great at this, as we 've been saying throughout the series is. Salvation's not just like theological algebra. It's like, oh, if God does this, plus us sinner over here, then equals, then this place of being kind of right with God. It is that, but it's, it, there's emotion in it. There's God is seeing us in distress and caring and being jealously loving for us and doing something about it. He came to, to the furthest reaches of the universe to come get us when we were saying, help in our sins, help in the clutches of death and hell he heard and he did not just sit in his back saying, he cares, he loves you. And so the cost then screams love. And and again, all true love costs something. It does. All real true love, you cannot have love without sacrifice. This is a human principle and a divine one. You cannot have love without it costing you something, without sacrifice. It's the same with God. The ultimate goal then of this type of love uh, confronting us really is that we'd believe in his love. We'd rest in it. Romans 2.4 says this about love. Really, he uses the word kindness, but you could plug in love there as well. His love is meant to lead us to repentance. His loving kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. So see, it's meant for something. It didn't just happen. Uh, it, it, meant to, it, it was meant to do something and to compel us. And to Repentance just means turning. To turn away from what we were formerly worshiping and from a place of just not caring about God at all it's like I just don't care from that place to a place where like I can't believe God is like this and worshiping him and being thankful for him and being swept away by the love that's expressed on a cross like that that's and we'll all imperfectly that's a huge deal of course that we never perfectly do not about you perfectly doing that it's just about you doing that and me doing that that his love is meant to captivate us and isn't it interesting that it's his kindness his love here Notice it doesn't say the Ten Commandments were meant to lead you to repentance because they couldn't. That his laws were meant to change your mind, meant to make you a better person. The cross was meant to lead you to repentance. See, only someone who's captivated by this will change. That's it. The, the, the Ten Commandments and morality itself never did that for Israel in the Old Testament. And so often in the church these days, that becomes the centerpiece of our spirituality. And we're, we're shocked When it doesn't change our hearts, it was never intended to. God's not saying, try harder, and in that, I know you'll just wanna repent. You know, when has that worked for you? Ever! It's never worked for me once in my life. I've never repented and turned to God in the face of do this or else, or keep this or else, or clean yourself up or else. Never works. But love, totally different story. Love interrupts things in a good way, it's not karma. Love, grace, kindness from God interrupts the, 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 just the normal flow of life for us, and it captivates us. It makes us want to stare, look at it. And like a, even a, like a good movie or a book where we read about love or something, that's, that can captivate us. we know another marriage that's healthy, and it impresses upon us, wow, that's a really cool showing of love in a much greater way God's does for, for us. So as you might expect then, um, this, going back to Song of Solomon, this type of love that's very sacrificial makes her cry out for her husband's presence. It makes her want to be with him. And that's how the book ends. Verses 13 and 14 end with her crying out, make haste, my beloved. And as we just sang earlier, make, it's right from this verse, make haste, my beloved, and remove these interposing days or remove these things, this separation between me and you that I want to end Uh, She ends it that way, which is really cool then, of course, on a a greater biblical theological level. We've talked a lot in this series about how the Song of Solomon as a whole kind of poetically depicts this whole book. The whole storyline of this book, from Old to New Testament, climaxing in Jesus, is basically whispered in eight short poetic chapters in the Song of Solomon, uh, in how there's movement in a human marriage or relationship from engagement and waiting, anticipation, To wedding and consummation, that mirrors how we wait on God's promises in the Old Testament when he promises restoration, promises an end to the curse, and then finally delivers it in a consummative, salvific kind of way in uh, Christ in the New Testament. So if you were here several weeks ago, we talked about this in much more depth, but if you weren't, or just by means of reminder, I want to remind you that the Song of Solomon is just kind of prophetically telling the whole story through a relationship. There's separation and there's a coming together. Like every relationship has that. In the same way, there's separation between us and our true husband, God, and then Christ makes this happen. The, the marriage, the consummation, the, the, the reuniting with our creator. So it's the, same, it's the same thing. But anyway, if this is the case, and it is, then it makes sense that we'd see the book end literally on the same note as the whole biblical story does. Uh, the, the note of her wanting him to hasten, his almost secondary coming to the way the Bible ends with the church wanting that from Christ. It's exactly what we see. In uh, the last few words, really, of the whole Bible, which is Revelation 22, last book of the Bible, last chapter of the Bible, it says in verse 17 and 20, the spirit and the bride, or the church, say, come to Jesus Christ. And let the one who hears say, come, return. Revelation 20, uh, verses tw- 22, verse 20 says, he who testifies Jesus to these things says, surely I am coming soon. He's hastening his return. And then, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So this is the posture of the church then. And we sung, we sung this earlier. We're going to sing it again to close here in a few minutes. But uh, this is part of what the Bible says when it, it describes what the church is like is there's, there's this, I cannot wait for his return. I want to see his face. I want to see the one who said, you're more important than me to me than my very life. That's how much I loved you. I want to look at that person and hug them and be close to them and hear from them, hear their words wash over me, his words wash over me again. So the posture then is this yearning because, because we love him, right? Love drives that. It's kind of like, you know, a wife, back to the human side for a second, yearning for her husband to return from work or from an out-of-state trip. Aletha's mentioned this to me before as well, how, which I think is a cool thing uh, that when I come home from a work trip or from just 5 30 on a Tuesday or something and she's really happy to see me and the kids are really happy to see me and I'm really happy to see them and we just wrestle on the floor for a minute and I just embrace Aletha and like for her that reminds her of Christ like that reminds her of what the end will be like it will be kind of like that right because it's what the Bible says it'll be like a reuniting of a bride and a husband who are kind of apart for a while and they just cannot simply wait to be together and uh, that's the nature of the church's yearning and it's the reality, the picture of what it will be like. There'll be happiness, there'll be laughter, there'll be, this is good that this is happening right now. Like what loving husband and wife has that happen and says, oh, it's bad that my husband's coming home, right? Or that I did not see my wife again or whatever. That's just that's, That never happens in a loving relationship, right? Why do you think it would happen with God, who's the ultimate husband? Why would it be a fearful thing for the church, why, why would it be something that we wouldn't pray for every single day? And, and here's the thing. The only reason that it would not be a good thing for us is if we have a wrong, false view of what the gospel is. And I kind of mentioned this before as well, but if, if the nature of your relationship with Jesus Christ is based on what you do for him, and if you think judgment will be about being graded, figuratively speaking, on how well you've done in this life, you're never going to want him to come. Right? Who, who in that state of mind would want the Lord to appear and judge all? No one. You'd never say, haste my beloved. You'd say, God, actually delay, because I've got some work to do. Right? Haste my beloved only comes from people who are intoxicated by the gospel. Intoxicated by the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's the only motive for saying, come back quickly. Right? There's the law, fear, love, return, grace, rest. This is why we have to be drinking and eating of the gospel all the time and rejecting religion, rejecting performance-based spiritualities, even in the name of Christ, which are false gospels. Uh, Many people in the name of Christ or the church teaches this in so many ways. It's just false. It's, it's It's a damning truth to say that Christ died, but you have to perform. From the pit of hell, reject it. Christ didn't die on a cross just to kind of get you halfway. He didn't die in that manner to kind of show love but then say, well, I love you, but you have to be a good person to keep my love. Does that ever happen in a good human marriage? Then why do you think it happens in the divine marriage? Why do we do that? Why do we regress to that? So the the invitation then here is to be eager, to be grounded in the gospel. And and I forgot Hebrews 9.28, but here in the bottom it says, those who are eagerly waiting eagerness and excitement only come from love. Like a bride waiting for her groom is the right posture of living. And, and the question then is, and, and it's okay, if you're not fully there, if you think, oh, I'm a Christian, but I don't feel that, it doesn't mean you're not a believer. Like it's all of a sudden there's this, you know, declarative thing that you've lost your faith. That's not the point because you never will fully, and I will never fully be in that proper place of eagerness. But it's still a good, like, heart check for, um, for where you are spiritually. And I'll say for myself, when I'm not in a state of wanting Christ's return, just thinking much about it or praying about it, it always flows from my lack of gospel understanding. The end will be much more like a bride waiting to walk down the aisle than someone sitting in a room ready for an interview with a briefcase. I think a lot of people have that, we have that perspective sometimes, right, about the end is, It's an interview. It's demotion or promotion time. Am I going to answer the right questions? Am I going to say the right thing? Am I going to know, you know, what Moses' middle name was or whatever? That's a joke, I know, but whatever. there's There's no question. You know what happens at the very end of the Bible in Revelation? There's two books. There's a book of deeds, and the other book is called the Lamb's Book of Life, the Lamb being Jesus, or the Lamb should remind us of the fact that he died as a lamb substitutionarily for the people like in the old testament he's the ultimate human lamb who shed his blood for the sins of the world there's a book of uh, that's called the lamb's book of life but then there's a book of deeds and, and revelation 20 says at the very end again, it's a picture of the future this is what's going to happen when god returns So, what judgment's going to look like the book of deeds is going to be open up and everything you and i have ever done or thought in the darkest corners of our heart will be laid bare before the Lord. He already knows these things anyway, but it will be kind of freshly known by him, and all the angels and the cosmos will see it. Yikes. You know. Not good news, right? And the point is, no one's saved by that book. And actually, in connection with the book of deeds uh, is hell and damnation, because no one gets into the kingdom based on what they do. Do you remember what's in the Lamb's book of life, though? Like what, what's the contents inside Jesus' book of life? What's inside? Names, right? Not deeds, not what you've done. Just, just your name. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins or not? Is your name written in as someone who said, His blood is it. That's it. That's all that's going to matter on the last day. Have you trusted in his blood or not? As a messy, sinful, just dead, rotting corpse from the inside person, have you just stumbled towards the cross and said, Please save me. Your name's written in the book of life. Your name, it's the best news ever, not what you've done. So for, for the church then, see what's going to kind of compel and, and motivate our worship and in, in our, in our haste, my beloved, and remove these interposing days, come back, is we have that to look forward to. A banqueting feast, like a groom receiving his bride lovingly. This name of just, have you believed in Jesus alone or not? All those, even so-called Christians, who are striving to be good people on their own efforts, will be judged based on their deeds and their bad will always outweigh their good. It's clear. No one will get in based on it and their portion will be in the lake of fire. Forever, the Bible says. God is a God of love and he's a God of wrath against sin. And it's good that he is. We want a God who hates our enemies, uh, but he's both. And at the end, uh, again, for the church, what's driving your worship What's driving your expectation and eagerness? If it's, the, if it's book of deeds related spirituality, you'll never pray this prayer. You'll never be like the spirit and the bride saying, come Lord Jesus. You'll be fearful. You'll be ashamed it is coming. We all will, right? But if, if we have a book of life motivated spirituality, a wedding based kind of spirituality, then we'll, we'll want this. We'll want to see the face of our creator just because he's our creator but because he's good and he's personally died for us in our place, and he'd do it again. Love has driven that cost, that costly love, sacrificial love. So, so that's that final question I want to leave you guys with is, uh, say the thing that she says to Solomon. Make that, a, make that a prayer and not just be too straight up kind of checklist driven with it, but the only way you'll want to pray that prayer, this is the most important thing, is, is love, is basking in God's love. That's it. That's the only way we'll be driven to do it. So, has love then driven you to say, hasten, make haste my beloved, or hasten your coming? Come soon. It'd be better if you showed up today than all the pleasures of earth times a million combined. Uh, You are better because all those are at best gifts from you, but you're the giver. And see, the only way we, we start to actually sound, doesn't it sound Christian to say that? It's kind of like, I don't know if I feel that right now all the time, but it just sounds Christian, right? But the way we get to like sounding spiritual, sounding biblical, sounding very Jesus-centered is not trying to manufacture that, not trying to be a good person, but by believing you're a dead person who's been resurrected because you've been loved. If you really believe that, uh, your prayers will, in part, sound like this. Make haste, my beloved. I really, really, really want to be with you. I'd be so good if you would come home before all these pleasure, pleasures I get to experience tonight Garbage, really, in comparison to you. I want you first. And the only place that comes from is being captivated by by the gospel of love. And that is what Song of Solomon is is all about. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, your grace and love. The gospel according to Song of Solomon that uh, is very particular